0: I am amped up for today's mental game podcast, one of the white whales of this podcast, someone I have long sought after joins me today, and that's the great Bob Tewksbury. Now Tewksbury pitched in the majors for 13 years, Yankees, Cubs, Cardinals, Rangers, Padres, and Twins. He was an expert tactician, one of the lowest walks per nine inning rates. In big league history now that's all dandy but the reason Tewksbury's on the pod today is his commitment to the mental game after retiring he got his master's degree in psychology and went into mental coaching he won rings with the Red Sox as their mental skills coordinator then he worked for the Giants and then the Cubs now Tewksbury's in his first year on his own serving his own clientele as a certified mental coach He's the author of 90% Mental, which he co wrote with Scott Miller. And if you're like me and you're a geek about sports psychology, this book's got to be one of your Bibles. So I am thrilled to have Bob Tewksbury join me today, 13 year MLB pro, certified mental skills coordinator, and today's guest on the mental game. <laughs> The first moment you stepped on a major league mound, it was at Yankee Stadium, late 80s. At that time, what was your understanding of the mental side of baseball?
1: <laughs> Don't talk about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, there was no mental skills coaches. Uh, Ken Revisa was a couple of years away from starting work with the angels. Um, Harvey Dorfman was a couple of years away from starting with the uh, athletics. Um, so it wasn't very mainstream. As a matter of fact, I think in, when I went to spring training in 86, we I think we had, they had just hired a full-time strength and conditioning coach. Um, and So that was just coming up in baseball was the concept of strength and conditioning and training and weightlifting and um, all that. So, you know, there was uh, there was a sign of weakness. It wasn't something that you talked about. Um, You didn't want to let anyone know how you really felt. And as a young pitcher in New York, that was uh, pretty intimidating.
0: You're at the forefront of this, but that's changing a lot. Now, there's no doubt that the mental side is lagging behind a lot of the physical changes we've seen, nutrition, strength, and conditioning.
1: But it's happening. The mental part uh, has lagged behind, uh, but I think it's gaining more and more uh, acceptance. Uh, The majority of the teams have a mental skills person on their staff. some some uh, staffs, some organizations have multiple levels of uh, mental skills coaching, from you know AAA down to the low A, and even to the to the uh, Dominican academies and Spanish speaking people. Um, so that um, it has grown uh, and you know, it's more readily accepted than it was five years ago. And I think it'll continue to be. However, I, I do think that um, there's still uh, some hesitancy from some players to really open up because, you know, in essence, you still work, you're an employee of the team. And I think that that, can be uh, a barrier. Some players are not comfortable with.
0: You bring up going through things. What's the difference between the mental skills coaching and dealing with mental health struggles that players might be going through?
1: Mm, Good question. Um, Well, uh, mental skills coaches uh, for the most part are not licensed practitioners. You know, we, we are, are applied, we work in applied sports psychology. Uh, we have a master's degree in some level of performance psychology. Uh, some are trained, uh, accredited as consultants through uh, the Applied Association of Sports Psychologists, the ASP, um, with the Certified Mental Performance Coach Certificate. So, you know, we don't treat or diagnose. And so, when you say mental skills, we're talking about applied work with players to enhance performance, to deal with confidence, uh, controlling distractions, um, you know, goal setting, taking one pitch at a time, whatever it may be. Uh, mental health issues are, uh, you know, in my view, more clinical: uh, anxiety, depression, um, to the degree in which. They need to see someone who's licensed or a practicing psychologist. Um, so I think that there's a difference. And I think how mental skills coaches can be helpful is to, you know, and what we must do is make proper referrals to uh, the, the appropriate uh, licensed doctor in the event that, you know, we have... You know, if I met with a player that seemed really depressed or very anxious, I would ask the player, you know, look, you seem like you have some underlying stuff here that I'm not trained to handle. Uh, Would you mind if I get you in touch with Dr. Smith to help you talk about this? Almost always they say no, um, but that's the, the, the referral basis of our work to the trained uh, people is, is really important.
0: They almost always say no.
1: They almost always say they don't mind. Oh, oh, okay. I I thought you were saying no No, to the referral. No, I said, do you mind if Mm -hmm. I give your name? And they almost always say, no, I don't mind.
0: I'm going to treat this podcast sort of like you treat your book, 90% mental, which anyone (laughs) listening to this podcast, because they, are a sports fan who's interested in psychology and the mental side of baseball. I mean, this has got to be your Bible right here. Mm -hmm. You weave your career and psychological concepts really well throughout this book. So I'm going to hit you back with the career. I asked you about the first time you stepped on the mound, a big flashpoint for you as you write about was 1990. You almost threw a perfect game. Mm
1: -hmm. He
0: word almost. And it mm-hmm. affected you and affected your outlook. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that day for me?
1: Yeah. Well, I, first, I have to say that, you know, I did not write this book alone. The co-writer, Scott Miller, uh, formerly of the Bleacher Report, and he's just a terrific writer. He's the one with the the who did the weaving and did a great job of telling my story. Um, so I, I got to give him a lot of credit for that yeah the that day was uh august um mid august nineteen ninety uh i had just uh well i really um i was just establishing myself in the big leagues i the season started with a lockout from the owners um the start of the season had expanded rosters, which changed after a short time when the season got underway. I was on that expanded roster and pitched a little bit, got sent back to, um, AAA, And it was pretty discouraged about where I was. Um, and then I got a phone call, uh, and Ted Simmons, um, the farm director now hall of famer, um, Uh, Called me up and uh, actually, I met him outside of his office, uh, outside of the Big League clubhouse. And he said, You're going to pitch on Saturday against the Expos. And if you do well, you get the ball again. Uh, And it scared the death out of me. But uh, looking back at it and reflecting on it shortly after that, it's what every player wants to hear. You know, we put in a lot of time and energy and effort uh, away from your family, a lot of sacrifices. Just for a chance. And, you know, uh, and I think all players will tell you, you know, if you give me a chance and I don't perform well, then I'll leave. You know, I'll find something else to do. So for me, that opportunity was right there. So I had started out uh, pitching pretty well and I uh, went into August. I had pitched, a, um, I think it was August 18th. Cause my start before that, I pitched a complete game shut out um so I was pitching and feeling pretty good and you know the Houston team came in and at the time they weren't a a real um you know dominant team in the league they did have Biggio and Caminiti and um uh Franklin Stubbs of course um but uh and I was just on a roll. And I think Rich Gedman was my catcher. And I I I Getty's a great game caller. And and we just had fun working the lineup and making pitches. And it was, you know, I won't say it was easy, but um I had a lot of things going for me. I was throwing strikes, getting early outs. Um and then we come to the after the seventh inning, um, you know, standing ovation. And, and I knew what was going on. i am been a st- student of the game for a long time. And I just kept thinking, throw strike one. It's, you know, always my mantra uh, in between innings, sitting in the dugout was throw strike one, get the leadoff hitter out. Throw strike one, get the leadoff hitter out. Um, and I was focused on that. And went up to Zeal. Todd was the catch, uh, actually, uh, Getty. No, it was Zeal was catching that game. Getty had caught the, the time before that Todd was catching. And I said, what do you want to throw stubs? He was leading off the eighth inning and he goes, let's just go fastball away. You know, let's try not to get too tricky. Um, and I, because the time before that, I remember I had thrown him a, a curve ball that he pulled. Um, he was out in front of it a little bit, but he was kind of looking for it. I felt. And, um, so I go fastball away is it. So I threw it and I, I it was a little bit up, um, but Vince Coleman was playing left and he had shifted a little bit to, to the alley. Uh, and he couldn't have caught it anyway. I don't think And it bounced in for a ground root double. And I had the the mix of emotion of, you know, a little bit of relief because of, the magnitude of carrying this to the ninth inning, you know, um, it was a mix of relief and disappointment all in one really strange emotion because, you know, you don't know if you're ever going to get to that uh, position far that far in the game again. And I get the next um, four hitters out. Oh, I get the next six hitters out and ended up with a one hit shutout. And so At the time, I I think, like I say in the book, I was really more concerned with staying in the big leagues than trying to pitch a perfect game. And I think if that game had happened five years later, my view on that inning would have been different. Um, But so, yeah, so that was the near perfect game. And I thought about that game uh, all offseason about, you know, And I think I talk about is a perfect game, really perfect. You know, the pitch that I made was not a perfect pitch, but it could have resulted in an out. And I think during that game, there were a lot of pitches that were not perfect that resulted in outs. So I think, you know, I think players uh, dealing with expectations is something that athletes really do fight. Uh, And perfectionism is, is something that uh, is in that, uh, in the, in the DNA of players, I think. Um, but it's something to strive for, but it's, it's not something that you'll, you attain because then what do you do next? You know, it's not like you're perfect then you're perfect forever. You know, I might've been perfect for one game and even then I wasn't perfect, you know? So anyway, so that's a long story.
0: You can't have a perfect career that put you in the hall of fame. <laughs> Perfect game every game. Right. <laughs> you know, Bob, I- I'm really enthralled by your attitude towards playing for your career, right? You said going into this game, you were essentially told, hey, if you pitch well, you'll get the ball back. And I think it's easy for people like me to listen to people like you who played in the big leagues and say, oh, okay, that's just like how it is. That's how these athletes think. But for me, if someone came to me and said, okay, Sam, you're doing the broadcast tonight. If you do a good job, you can do another one. If not, <laughs> you know, we'll we'll let you go. Or, or for you, whoever's listening, mm-hmm. think about your job. Okay, you've got a client meeting tomorrow. Yeah, if you get the client, we'll keep you. If not, mm. you know, maybe you you start collecting unemployment. That's mm. terrifying to me, but it sounds like you embraced it.
1: Yeah, so how totally. the hell
0: do you embrace that?
1: Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I think, you know, at that point I was 30 years old. Um, wow, well, it was 30 years ago. That's crazy. Uh, I was 30 years old. I had, you know, just uh, come off major shoulder surgery the year before. Um, I'd been up and down multiple times. Um, you know, I'd worked really hard. We, I just got married. My wife had a good job. Um and at some point, you know, every player has to decide when's enough enough. Um, when am I tired of training? When am I tired of, of getting into the, um, you know, the the minutia of player moves and, you know, staying. and uh, And so it was freeing that if I went out and did my job, that I was going to have a job. And so, but to your point, I drove home. I'll tell you, I drove home that night, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is this is crazy." But then I grasped it uh, as an opportunity that I could control uh, so many things. Is you know, and even after the ball leaves my hand um it's out of my not what happens is out of my control but i can i could control my preparation i can control my thoughts i can control my uh sequences the best i could so within within what i could do i felt really confident about uh so when i when that day for that game came against the expos i was totally ready and i was actually i gave up three runs i think in the fifth or sixth inning um And we scored, I think I got the win. But I remember thinking, okay, at least I pitched into the seventh inning and gave up three runs. So I knew that I'd get another start, and I did. And I pitched into the seventh inning again. So I just, if I had gone out and pitched poorly that first time, I don't know if I would have not had a job uh, right away. But I know the pressure to pitch that second game would have been really intense, whereas the first game kind of gave me a mulligan. It's like it's like taking a test and, you know, you get off to a good start uh, with your grade and you can you get a little bit of a leeway to have a bad grade. But well, Yeah. So that's kind of what I did. I was uh, it was really a a scary feeling, but a good one. And um, yeah, it's a moment that I won't forget for sure.
0: You talk about the test that takes me back to high school when you're taking a hard class and you get the test and the first three questions, you have no freaking idea. Mm. And it's just like, oh, man, here, <laughs> here I know. I mean, what you're talking yeah. about is the opposite. But I just had a little flashback there. So minute to recover. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you did graduate. That's good.
0: I did. I did. And I'm still here standing or sitting and talking to you. And I've got your book right here. And something that was really fascinating to me is the audio tracks that you had Anthony Rizzo listen to. And Mm -hmm. I know many other players, but in the book, you focus on Rizzo. I'm here in Chicago, so I know a lot of listeners are Rizzo fans, Mm -hmm. which is why I want to zone in on him here. Because you talk in the audio track that you have him listen to about outcome goals. And process goals. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm hearing from you a lot here talking about your perfect game. It's being focused on the process because if you're focused on the outcome, well, that's just in baseball is a crapshoot. So what do you you'll, mean when you talk about
1: those goals? Yeah, you'll you'll be miserable. Well, you know, um, look, if players want to hit 300, that's the goal, right? Players want to have an ERA of under three. They can't control that. You know, um, it was interesting. I saw someone tweeted out something the other day that um, Rick Russell, who won gold, who won a number of gold gloves. um, It wasn't uh, something about the, you know, Jim Palmer won X amount of games and signing awards because when he started pitching, he had, you know, people that won gold gloves behind him. Rick Russell pitched on teams that had no gold glove winners except for him. So, you know, so the variables are how good a feeling team do you have? How many runs does the team score? Um, you know, um, for, for pitchers. So after the ball leaves my hand, it, it could be an out. It could be a swing and a miss. It could be a ball. It could be a home run. It could be a foul ball. All I can do is throw the next pitch. Um, And you have to have the mindset to do that over and over and over again. Uh, Certainly, you're trying to get outs. But what you're trying to do is make a quality pitch that leads to an out. Um, So from that standpoint, the ERA is so subject on other variables. Um, As a hitter, you know, it's the same thing. You can want to hit 300, um, but hitting is hard. And people catch line drives, and bad hops happen. And after the ball leaves your bat, there's nothing you can do about it. So that's why it all it comes down to, and that's the mental part, Sam. It comes down to preparation. You know, um, thinking about your strengths and weaknesses, uh, sticking to your routine. Consistent routines lead to consistent performance. Um, letting go of expectations. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of athletes uh have used the word should. Like if I hit the ball hard, I should get a hit. If I make a good pitch, I should get them out. Um and that's not always the case. I think you know, adaptability and and you know um the the ability to be challenged uh and, and face Baseball adversity, if you will, air quotes, um, is what separates the good players from the the great players is, you know, the the great players. All right. Well, I, I hit that hard. I'll hit it hard again. You know, the good players go, I hit that hard. That should have been a hit. You know, how come it wasn't a hit? I should have I should have been rewarded for that. And they just get stuck in the mindset of what should have happened that didn't versus. What what am I gonna do my next time up?
0: There was a really fascinating MLB.com piece that I read sometime last year. And it was asking players what stats they invest the most focus on. Mm. And for the hitters, it ranged from slugging percentage to war to you know some batting average. But one player, and I can't remember who it was, said Exit velocity, Hmm. because that's something you can control, right? Your batting average is a crapshoot, but how hard you hit the ball, you can control that. Now, where it ends up, not so much, but that was really interesting to me. And I'm Hmm. I'm getting shades of that with what you're telling me.
1: Yeah, and, and I would say, you know, can you really control exit velocity? Because that is predicated on where you hit it on the bat. And that's predicated on your swing and the pitch that's being thrown. Um, yeah, I, I understand that the goal is to hit the ball hard. But uh, again, would you rather have the best exit velocity in baseball and bat 200? Or would you rather have, you know, not worry about that and hit 325?
0: <laughs> so I choose the second.
1: Yeah, the latter for sure.
0: So hitting, you can't control the exit velocity, but pitching, you can control the velocity. Now, I'm going to take you to 1998, Bob, and use your words in 1998 to illustrate this point. Mm. But in a game against the Cardinals, you threw a 44-mile-an-hour pitch Mm. to Mark McGuire. Mm -hmm. And after the game, you said, quote, I can't throw the ball by him but I can throw it slower. (laughs) I couldn't wait to face him. It was a thrill.
1: Yeah, it's true. What do you
0: remember about that?
1: Yeah. Well, so the year before, he was with Oakland, I believe, and I was with the Twins, and Terry Steinbach was the catcher and great guy, great catcher, great career. Um, And I shook shook a, a pitch away and wanted to come in and I didn't get it in. And he, and Mark hit the cameraman in center field with the, the home run ball. And so Steinbach, being the smart ass that he is, he called timeout and came out and lifted up his mask and handed me the ball and said, I guess you didn't get that in, did you? And, <laughs> and um, so the next year, he's Mark's with the Cardinals. And. We're having the player, you know, pitchers' meeting, and I said, "Look, I'm going to throw him to EFIS. I'm going to throw it if I get the first two guys out of the inning. I'm going to throw him to EFUS. And he goes, "Yeah, let's do it." So that's what happened. I I don't think I've ever wanted to get the first two hitters out of the inning more uh, more badly than that because I really wanted to throw him to EFUS. And Mark had fun with it. He was a great sport. I actually I sent him over a note after. Because at the same time, I don't you can see it behind me now, but that, see the painting of McGuire? Yep. Um, I did a painting, a lithograph painting that year. Uh, the audience cannot see that, but, um, and it was to raise money for the Boys and Girls Club and Mark signed, uh, 100, we did 500 prints. Mark signed 100 of them. And this was around the time I sent him a hundred prints asking him to sign this, the home run chase is going on and all that. So he was graciously signing these prints in and around all the home run stuff. And here I am throwing them, you know, bugs, bunny curveballs. <laughs> so I sent him over a note that just said, um, Hey Mac, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm I just, I hope, you know, I was just trying to get you out and have some fun. I wasn't trying to embarrass you in any way. And he actually wrote me a note back that I have framed up here. It says, Tukes, I loved it. I'm a sucker for those. I was hoping you'd throw them all day. Your friend Mark. So that is beautiful. It was really cool. Really cool.
0: Also, I just noticed as you went up to read that, that you have a baseball in your right hand. Is that part of your body or (laughs) you just keep it around?
1: I keep it on my desk. Yeah. And I just, when I'm talking, I, Kind of hold it. I, you know, that's one thing you, the feeling of the seams on the ball is, is, uh, it's probably like having a binky when you're a baby. You know, you just, it feels good. It's soothing. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. When I broadcast, I almost always have a pen in my hand when I'm talking. For you, it's the baseball.
1: Yep. Exactly. Talk about
0: feeling the seams, focusing on those little things, taking those moments to, you know, feel the seams on the ball, focus on the grass, the smells, the sounds, the breathing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It can be so fast, but slowing down is really vital.
1: Yeah. You know, that's, you're talking about the, the ability, you know, imagery was a very big uh, skill of mine and, you know, being in Chicago, one of my favorite pitchers and a guy that really worked on his mental game was John Lester. And I know that, Cub fans are probably very unhappy that he's not back. But, you know, John in the book talks about an imagery program I made him with the Red Sox that he still listens to. And that program is basically, you know, seeing himself pitch one pitch at a time. Um, And listening to that, you know, gets him in a place mentally where things slow down Um, you know, I'm a big proponent of, of mental imagery as a, as a performance tool. Uh, it was the tool that I think, uh, I used that and self-talk were two of the things that I think really helped, you know, allow me to have a long career, good self-talk.
0: Can you dive into the psychology behind the visualization, putting your mind through the mental rehearsal?
1: Yeah. Uh. You know, uh try to do it as short as I can. You know, that the the concept is, you know, we can replicate muscle movement uh and action in our minds as if we were really doing it. They say that, you know, um imagery is like imagining you're you're getting a hit or making a pitch in your mind is just like you would normally do it. Um, they say that the body doesn't know the difference between a real or an imagined event. I don't know if it's that simple, but the science behind it, there's different theories on why imagery or I call it imagery, but visualization works. Well, I won't get into those theories um, because this isn't a psychology class, right? But essentially, you know, I, I think the concepts for me is seeing yourself be successful in advance of competition primes yourself to have success, you know, seeing yourself making quality pitches, uh, having guys hit ground balls, having guys hit pop-ups, pitching with men on base and seeing yourself, you know, uh, get, make people get outs. you know, so the benefits what they've talked about with imagery are, It can be used for error correction. You know, if I throw a curveball that's wrong, I can close my eyes and imagine throwing another one that was, or I could, you know, revisit my game and go, you know, that curveball that I threw, I really flew out and dragged my arm. You know, next time I want to throw it this way. Um, So, error correction, uh, skill development, you know, you can work on any skill that you want in your mind without any equipment um uh it helps build confidence as i said because it it uh, see you see yourself being successful uh situational rehearsal you can put yourself in situations in advance you know especially you know for hitters and pitchers men on base can be uh you know, anxiety provoking, whether you're a hitter and you got to drive them in, or if you're a pitcher and you're trying to prevent them from score, from scoring, you know, those situations don't happen all the time. So one way you can work on that is to put yourself into that mindset through imagery. So there's lots of benefits to it. You know, a lot of the great athletes do it. I know the, um, I forget the guy's name, but he did a free solo you know, before he climbed, um, El Capitan. Yeah. uh, Alex Honnold. Yes. Uh, you know, he visualized the whole trip, um, multiple times. I'm still so glad he made it to the top. Oh my God. That's just imagine. So, you know, you talk about going out and pitching, look, if you don't, you know, if you don't pitch while you're going to go to the minor leagues, I'm not going to die. Maybe it may be miserable. This guy makes a mistake and he's dead. It's just unbelievable. I just I watched that, and I was nauseous the whole time.
0: Me too. <laughs> but, but anyway,
1: so he uses it. Conor McGregor talks about imagery. Michael Phelps won an Olympic medal uh, because he imagined himself swimming the, the race over and over and over. And when he lost vision because his goggles are full of water, he didn't know where he was. He trusted his, his memory bank. Uh, so it's really a powerful skill.
0: Well, I know studies show that after you have a real life success in anything, your brain then operates better, right? If you're an endurance athlete and you win a race, you then unlock a little bit of a higher gear. So what you're telling me is you're not, it's not so much tricking your mind, but it's proving to your mind through imagery that it can happen, you can Mm -hmm. win this race, you can hit this home run, you can land this big client, it gives you that swagger.
1: Well, yeah, I I think it does help and that's a good point. I mean, I think, you know, most of the time you have to have done something in order to recall it again, uh, is what you're saying. And so, you know, every athlete, um, you know, Alex climbed smaller mountains. He knew that he could do it or a smaller scaling. And so, uh, I think, you know, people at ski, you know, crazy skiing events or, or even ski slalom, you know, the giant slalom people visualize, uh, snowboarding. You see the people on top of the hill before they jump down on the ramp visualizing. So you have to have done it. You don't I think you have to have done it so your body knows what it's doing. You know, um, like if I told you, I want to imagine yourself bungee jumping, maybe I don't, I'm guessing you probably haven't done it. It might be hard to do. But if I said, can you imagine walking down uh, on a beach uh, at 70 degree weather, you could do that. Wish I could. Not in Chicago right now, you can't. But. <laughs> I would love to, Bob.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating to me. And listeners of this podcast know our last guest. It's interesting you bring up risk because our last guest was Matt Gertis, who's one of the world's foremost base jumpers. So he's mm. in the realm of Alex Honnold, who you're talking about, where every time he does his thing, he's risking death.
1: Just no, thank you. I'll, I'll, (laughs) I'm not signing up for that gig. Uh, I they're wired differently, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, tell me about it. Well, going back to your career, Bob, something that stands out to me is your walks per nine. You have among the lowest walks per nine inning rates in MLB history. To Mm -hmm. go back and look at some of the entertaining fellows who are in the same realm as you, you have to go back to. Early 1900s, and some people with some really, really fun names. So, if you're a baseball nerd, (laughs) check it out.
1: That's true. Uh, (laughs) But,
0: Bob, you're among the leaders all time in this category. And Mm -hmm. to me, that strikes me as very fitting because we talk about process goals and controlling the controllables and throwing strikes, throwing the ball down the middle, even if you don't put a lot of mustard on it, is something you can control.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, it's not, people know strikeout pitchers or who pitched no hitters but um, that was the only reason I was able to win 110 games in the big leagues is because I didn't beat myself I didn't walk people I'd give up a hit but my thought was you know the guys that are playing behind me really like hitting more than fielding so the sooner I can get them off the field the happier they are they can hit number one Number two that the only people that don't like fast games are the beer vendors uh you know, and the concession stands everyone else wants to get out of there um and when you when you attack the strike zone, you put the hitter on the defensive so even though I was throwing eighty five miles an hour because my approach was aggressive and the hitters, I was ahead in the count. The hitters got defensive, and then I could have them hit my pitch, so I didn't. I didn't go out to be the, you know, one of the best control pitchers, uh, in MLB, but the process of my plan and pitching, uh, led me to that, which is exactly what you're saying. So, yeah, I, I thought I saw somewhere that I had, I pitched, I pitched in more games than I had walks. Uh, someone told me the other day, um, wow. Yeah, I had 292 walks, I think, and I pitched in over 300 games. So I had less walks than games pitched.
0: (laughs) You got to reprint this book and put that in there.
1: (laughs) I know that's incredible.
0: (laughs) I I, it took me a second to concept that to like Mm -hmm. think about the ratios, but wow.
1: Yeah, so that you deserve a
0: you deserve a bat pack.
1: Yeah, a bat
0: back pat. Say
1: that ten times fast. Well, you know, along that, you know, I practiced this, Sam, you know, I used to throw, I grew up in the country, I'd throw rocks at trees and try to hit them. I, I was throwing balls against the schoolyard wall, I'd, I'd make a strike zone and the, against the schoolyard wall and pitch to it. Um, I was always practicing throwing it to a target. Um, and that became a pretty, pretty much a good skill to have when you start facing these hitters in the big leagues that are really good.
0: 110 wins in the big leagues. And then after you retired, you got your master's in psychology and you became a very successful mental skills coach. You won championships with Boston. You went to San Francisco. You were with the Cubs, which a lot of listeners probably are smiling at. Mm. Why did you go into this?
1: Yeah. Well, you know i I think that um, you know, like we said earlier, there were no mental skills coaches when I was coming up. But I was always drawn to that. you know i I always I kept journals, um, I was in the self-help section, looking at looking for sports psych, looking for different things. Uh, I read a lot of those books, and I practiced that stuff. You know, what I teach, Players now. I mean, the imagery stuff started when I was a kid. When Norman Vincent Peel, who's the father of positive psychology, um, you know, was big into imagery and visualization. If you can see it and believe it, you can achieve it. So I started practicing imagery in high school, um, uh, and then learning how to control the little man. Like I talk about in the book is, um, you know. I had that I had that negative voice. I had to figure out a way to work around that. And so I developed something that worked for me. And that's what I teach the players. So uh, but I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew that I was tired of being away from the family. My desire to be home was greater than my desire to play. Um, And I got a degree because it was uh, I met a guy, Doug Gardner, who went on to have a great uh, still practicing. Um, I think he's a licensed psychologist. He's worked in the NFL. Um, he was working with a couple of Red Sox players and I'm like, Oh, you got a degree in sports psych. Where'd you get that Boston university? Oh, that's only an hour from my house. So I went down and started classes and then started the Red Sox mental skills Job or position in Boston, which, which has grown tremendously, and uh, and it's been a great second career. I'm fortunate to get, you know, as part of the Red Sox minor league system, you know, rings in 04 and 07, and then being part of the major league staff in 13, another ring, um, you know, to be able to work with players like Lester and Rizzo and Rich Hill and Andrew Miller and Clay Buckholtz and uh, You know, all those guys uh, has been really special. And, you know, the relationships that I have with players often, you know, I still talk to a lot of these guys, um, guys that didn't get to the big leagues that were with the Red Sox, I still stay in touch with. So I tell them that they're going to be a non-player longer than they ever played. uh, And I care about them as a person not just a player. So these relationships are valuable to me. And, um, it's, I, I just, I find it hard to to develop a relationship and help people and then not think about them and, uh, any longer. Um, uh, but yeah, so it's been great. It's been wonderful.
0: You're helping people get rid of the little man,
1: right? The Little man. Yeah. The little devil, the little man on your shoulder absolutely i've
0: applied that to my own life i i don't call mine the little man i call mine the asshole
1: (laughs) there you go (laughs) but you
0: have one right but i i got one and absolutely he's an asshole
1: that's great you name it you can tame it yeah good for you yep i think that that's important because i think you know my whole theory and teaching uh sports psych is you know, thoughts become things, thoughts lead to feelings, which lead to actions. Um, you know, that's really basic cognitive behavioral therapy stuff. And I try to get the players to be more aware of their thoughts and how that relates to performance. Um, and to be honest with that, you know, it's not deflecting like, well, you know, I thought it was a good pitch. No, it wasn't. It was right down the middle, you know, um, And it was down the middle because you were afraid to whatever. So just having to have that honest uh, self-awareness leads to the the level of work that I need from players to help them be better.
0: So after over a decade in organizations, picking up a few rings, now you've gone out on your own. You have your own Mm -hmm. practice, BobTooksbury.com. That's where people can learn more. Tell me what your day-to-day has been like now with your own clientele.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, I just feel like, you know, um, I wanted to do my own thing and have be able to access and work with players from all 30 teams, not just from one organization. Um, it's been great. I've, I've, uh, the book has been a great conduit to clients. I've had, uh, actually I had a, a figure skater, uh, that is on the USA team um, that I've worked with this year. I've had, uh, I have a couple of pitchers on the 40 man roster. I have a couple of minor league pitchers. I have high school prospects. Um, it's been really busy. So my day-to-day is, you know, most of it happens in the afternoon where I have one-on-one Zoom sessions with clients. And, um, you know, so between, prepping for the clients and doing a little research and I'm working on some presentations, I'm working on some more, uh, audio programs that to sell on my website, um, I'm keeping very busy. And, um, so it, it's good, you know, part of the difficulty in working for a team is there's a lot of standing around, you know, it, um, you know, it's not like the hitting coach where you go out and throw BP to everybody you know, the mental skills coach may do a presentation once a week and people only talk to you, you know, they don't only talk to you, but as far as working on issues, you know, a uh, few and far between. And now I'm engaged with clients that uh, are engaged that want to be better. And I really feel like my time is uh, being utilized very well. So yeah, you can find me at the website. Um, I'm on Twitter at Bob underscore Tewksbury. I just started rereading the inner game of tennis and I've been tweeting on that a little bit, which is a great book. Um, it is
0: really good. I, I, I want to just cut you off for a second because if you heard him say inner game of tennis and brushed it off, cause you don't play tennis, read it. I don't right. play tennis. I'm very bad at tennis yet learned. A lot of life lessons oh
1: it's a wonderful book and and Tim Galway wrote it in 1974, which before anyone was talking about sports psych and the stuff we're doing now so he was definitely a pioneer but yeah so I'm excited to, of, to work with a variety of athletes not just baseball players I have a, a golfer uh, as well and uh, it's very exciting and it's something that you know I can do from my home so i can be home with my wife of 32 years and um just enjoy uh enjoy day-to-day activities.
0: I saw on your twitter banner that you have a very cute dog and i would like to hear more about this dog.
1: <laughs> oh, Mr. Higgins. Yeah. He is a uh, King Charles Cavalier Spaniel. Um and he's named Mr. Higgins because of my fair lady, uh my my mother-in-law was a brit and my fair lady there was henry higgins henry higgins was a character in that and i didn't want to name him henry so we named him higgins Um, and being a british family uh english my my mother-in-law is from london we decided to make it formal and put a mister in front of it so He's the bomb. He's he's. I I I should resend out some tweets, some stuff. I last year when I came home after COVID, I was we were doing ground balls, and uh he would field them, and I we did inside ground balls, outside ground balls, and even now when I say you want to do grounders, he jumps in circles and runs to he the door. He knows the word
0: grounders.
1: Yes, he does. Yep. That's awesome. And I
0: feel like I need to say his name with a British accent. It's Mr. Higgins.
1: There you go. Well done. <laughs>
0: well done. Wow. Well, well, every friend I've ever had has told me I have a really bad British accent, so I might save the clip of you saying well done and just keep that handy.
1: <laughs> you should. That's the thing about recording. You can you can manipulate anything you want, Sam.
0: <laughs> well, Bob, thank you for joining me and... Folks, BobTooksbury.com, at Bob underscore Tewksbury 90% mental, which Bob wrote with Scott Miller. It's a Bible if you're into this stuff, so make sure you check that out. Bob, really, really appreciate the time today.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Sam, and good luck with the baseball season. I think you have a, a great broadcaster's voice. I know you love the game of baseball. I bet you're very good at what you do and continued success this summer. Uh, in Chicago.
0: Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Take care. Back in the studio, what a conversation with Bob. He was wonderful. Really appreciate his time and energy. And I mentioned the walks per nine stat, how he's among the leaders in MLB history with the lowest walks per nine innings and how there's some really good names because you have to go back to the early 1900s and even 1800s to find the other guys. Here are some of those names. Addie Joss, Deacon, Philip, and Babe Adams. Those are the guys that Bob Tewksbury is in the same discussion with as far as throwing strikes, which he did better than anyone else other than those guys. He's also an amateur artist. He mentioned the Mark McGuire lithograph hanging behind him in his room. Well, he has a bunch of those. He's painted throughout his career and He can paint the corners, and he can talk mental game big time. So thanks to Bob Tewksbury for joining me. Again, you can check him out at bobtewksbury.com. All right, this has been another fresh edition of The Mental Game. More A-list guests coming down the wire. Talk to you soon. Have a great week. Be healthy. Be safe. Adios. (laughs)